Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. In the 5th century BCE, the Greeks were scattered across a wide swath of the ancient world, stretching from the northern shores of the Black Sea down to the Mediterranean coast of Asia Minor, across the hundreds of islands of the Aegean Sea to mainland Greece itself, then westwards to southern Italy and as far away as modern-day Nice and Marseille in southern France. This Greek world was characterized by political disunity and diversity. The Greeks were divided into as many as 1,500 autonomous or semi-autonomous communities, polis in ancient Greek, or as we call them today, city-states. Their inhabitants saw themselves as Athenians or Spartans, Samians or Syracusans first, as Greeks only and very distantly second. In fact, there was at the time no single name for Greece or Greeks. The name Hellas then only meant an area south of the Spurkaios, a river near the Pass of Thermopylae. Each city-state or polis typically consisted of a dominant city, town, or population center in its surrounding rural territory. Each fiercely guarded its independence against all of the others. Warfare was therefore a more or less permanent feature of ancient Greek life. In the 5th and 4th centuries BCE, war broke out in the Greek world nearly two out of every three years. Moreover, when they waged war, Greeks almost always fought other Greeks. The study of ancient Greek warfare was revolutionized in 1989 with the appearance of Victor Davis Hansen's The Western Way of War. In it, Hansen brilliantly anatomizes the nature, the characteristics, and above all the experience of classical Greek battle. Following his lead, a flood of new research has greatly expanded our understanding of these subjects. Sometime in the late 8th or early 7th century BCE, the Greeks began to develop a distinctive way of fighting that involved heavily armored infantrymen who were arrayed in dense formations and who closed with their enemies to fight in hand-to-hand combat. The new-style Greek infantryman was called the Hopelite. His most important, most distinctive, and most distinguishing piece of equipment was his shield, the Aspis or Hoplon. The Aspis was about one meter or three feet in diameter, and weighed around seven kilograms or sixteen pounds. It had a solid core of wood covered by a thin sheet of bronze. Hopelite carried his shield strapped to his left forearm and controlled it with his left hand by a hand grip. The shield's shape was round and extremely concave. In profile, it resembled an immense dish. The shape of the shield was of utmost importance in classical Greek warfare. We need to keep it in mind. In addition to his shield, the Hopelite wore other protective gear. His head was covered by a helmet. From 700 to 500 BCE, this was most commonly the famous Corinthian helmet. This helmet provided almost complete protection to the face and head. However, it had only relatively small eye slits, 
and completely lacked holes for the ears. It therefore drastically limited the Hopelite's vision and hearing. The helmet also typically sported a horsehair crest. The crest added some protection from head blows, but its main function was ornamental. It made the Hopelite look taller and fiercer. The Hopelite's most important piece of body armor was his breastplate, or cuirass. Covering the entire torso, it consisted of front and back sheets of bronze that were connected at the shoulders. Above the hips, the breastplate flared outwards, creating a bell shape, which aided the Hopelite's movements. To protect his lower legs, the Hopelite wore a set of greaves, which were made from flexible bronze and snapped onto the calves without the need for straps. In terms of offensive arms, the Hopelite's most important weapon by far was his spear. The spear was a thrusting weapon, used purely for stabbing in hand-to-hand combat. It was thrown only in extremis. It had a bronze or iron spearhead and a bronze butt spike, which the Greeks called the sorotor, or lizard sticker. The spear shaft was made from cornell, ash, or similar hardwood. From tip to butt, the spear was about 2.5 meters, or 8 feet in length, and 2.5 centimeters, or 1 inch in diameter. As a backup for his spear, the Hopelite had a short sword that was usually little more than a dagger. He would use it only if his spear broke. The Hopelite's suite of defensive and offensive equipment, what the Greeks called his panoply, represented a considerable physical burden. Because they were made from wood, no aspis from the classical period has survived to be excavated by archaeologists. By contrast, several bronze cuirasses have been found. However, during the 2,500 years between their fabrication and their unearthing, corrosion and damage has worn them down, making precise calculations of their weight impossible. Despite these obstacles, modern scholars have gone to great lengths to estimate the total weight of arms and armor carried by the Greek Hopelite. They have come up with a range of 23 to 32 kilograms, or 50 to over 70 pounds. Modern soldiers consider the higher figure close to the maximum carrying capacity in armed combat. However, the average ancient Greek man was much smaller and lighter than his modern counterpart, about 165 centimeters, or 5.5 feet in height, and 68 kilograms, or 150 pounds in weight. Hope Light Arms and Armor therefore taxed him to his limits. Additionally, wars in Greece were normally fought in the summer, when temperatures could reach 40 degrees centigrade. Under such conditions, the Hopelite helmet and breastplate acted as solar collectors. Both also appeared to lack padding of any kind. Their wearers must have found the bronze closer to their skin and on their hair almost unbearably hot. The ancient Greeks had numerous sayings that referred to the burden of the Hopelite panoply. Perhaps the most famous is the supposedly customary farewell of Spartan mothers to their sons. Sintai i epitai, with it or on it. The it referred to the Hopelite shield. The shield was so heavy that when Hopelites were defeated in battle, they usually discarded it in an order to flee more quickly. On the other hand, the shield's dish shape also made it perfect for carrying off dead bodies. Spartan mothers were therefore telling their sons to come back victorious or dead, but not as cowards without shields. Hopelite arms and armor were so burdensome 
that the Greeks gradually modified them to make them lighter and more comfortable. The greaves seem to have been abandoned altogether. Although they did not represent an unreasonable extra weight, greaves might have been particularly burdensome on campaign and in combat because they chafed when running or even walking. In terms of the helmet, the Corinthian type appeared to fall out of favor after 500 BCE to be replaced by models that offered better sight and hearing and not least more comfort, such as the open-faced Boeotian helmet. The Greek hopelites even modified that centerpiece of their body armor, the bronze cuirass. After 600 BCE, it appeared that more and more hopelites abandoned metal in favor of leather or even stiffened linen body armor. But the essentials of the hopelite panoply, some type of body armor, and especially the shield, remained constant. The shield was perhaps the greatest burden of all. In combat, the Hopelite had to hold its 7 kilogram weight at chest height, using only the strength of his left arm. The Greeks of the Poles chose to bear the burdens of shield and armor because they made possible a distinctive and devastatingly effective style of warfare. In a pitched battle, Hopelites did not fight as individuals. Instead, they formed up into a densely packed formation called the phalanx. They customarily lined up eight ranks deep, but sometimes more. The men of the first three ranks could reach the enemy with their spears. The men of the remaining ranks held their spears up in part to help deflect incoming missiles. The phalanx formation was only possible because of the Hopelite's shield. Three-foot diameter of the aspis allowed each Hopelite to protect his left side and also the right side of his comrades standing to his left. The front rank of the phalanx therefore created a wall of overlapping shields that offered strong collective protection against frontal attacks. As the Greeks noted, helmets and breastplates are for ourselves, but the shield is for the common defense. But the phalanx was more than just a shield wall. The shield wall was a very common infantry formation in ancient warfare. As we'll see, the Persians used a version of it. What made the phalanx unique was that the Hopelites behind the front ranks, who were beyond the immediate reach of the enemy's weapons, also had a use for their shields. Its dish shape allowed the Hopelite to put his shoulder and much of his body into the shield. He would then rest the front of his shield on the back of his comrade in front and push. The goal was to create forward momentum on the men in the front ranks and keep them advancing. The Hopelite phalanx represented a simple, and straightforward style of fighting. A Greek general, a strategos, had to do very little pre-battle planning, and had few tactical options available to him once fighting began. He led his troops to the battlefield, deployed them in their phalanx, performed a sacrifice to the gods, and delivered a morale-building speech. But his main duty was to take up the point of maximum danger in the phalanx, the front rank on the right wing, and serve as an inspiration to his men through his steadfast courage and prowess in arms. The phalanx itself did not demand rigorous training to be effective. A hopelite needed strength, endurance, and above all courage, more than skills at maneuvering and in the handling of weapons. The reason for the simple style of fighting was that the Greek hopelite, strategos as much as common rancor, was, with one great exception, an amateur. Greek city-states demanded that their citizens fight in war as a condition of political participation. 
Therefore, all free adult Greek men, save for the very poorest and the wealthiest, were required to muster as hoplites and fight in the phalanx. Furthermore, they provided their own armor and arms, which represented a considerable personal expense. Greek warfare might have been simple and straightforward, but it was also as deadly, intense, and terrifying as possible within the limits of Iron Age technology. From about the 9th to the middle of the 5th century BCE, a battle involving Greeks tended to follow a stereotypical pattern. Two phalanxes would line up on opposite ends of a level plain. A phalanx, arrayed for battle, must have been a fearsome and splendid sight. A wall of overlapping bronze shields, each marked with a device chosen by its bearer, a lucky charm, a family badge, a sign of a favored god. Above the shields waved horsehair plumes in a riot of colors, and above those, rank after rank of uplifted spear points, shining in the bright summer sun. There also would have been a wall of sounds, music from flutes and trumpets, war cries from men screwing up their courage, the inspirational harangue from the strategos, then a deep-voiced chorus from the phalanx, as the hope lights raised the paean, the hymn traditionally sung as the signal to begin the advance into combat. The two phalanxes would come lumbering toward each other, first at a walk. Drawing closer, they accelerated into a shambling run. Then the two blocks of men would smash together in a grinding collision of bronze, iron, and flesh. It was at this moment of first impact that the combatants could deal their most dangerous blows. The promakoi, the front-rank fighters, thrusting their spears underhand, would use the momentum of the final run to penetrate shields and armor. If one phalanx did not immediately collapse at impact, then the two opposing formations became locked in a grinding shoving match. The Greeks called this phase of the battle the otismos, literally the push. The hope light front rankers would stab at each other, trying to penetrate shields, helmets, and breastplates to deal fatal or crippling wounds. However, many of their spears would have been broken at the first collision. Numerous front rankers would have had to resort to their swords or the butt spikes of their spears. Meanwhile, the men of the rear ranks would put their bodies into their shields and shove their comrades in front. The two hope light phalanxes would grind and push against each other until the front rank of one of them collapsed, allowing the enemy hope lights to pour into the interior of the formation. The penetrated phalanx would then rapidly disintegrate. The hope lights who made it up would break formation and attempt to flee for their lives. The victorious hope lights would pursue, trying to run down and kill as many of their foes as possible. However, this pursuit never went very far. The victorious hope lights were just as exhausted and encumbered by their gear as the defeated. After it was over, the victors stripped the enemy dead of their equipment and erected a trophy to commemorate their success. The losers requested a truce to recover their dead, thus admitting their defeat. Those dead would have been numerous but not crippling to the defeated. According to the best modern estimate, a vanquished Greek army would have lost about 15% of its men. The winners' losses were significantly less, perhaps 5%. I've dwelt on the heavy armor and arms of the Hopelite in order to help give some sense of the dynamics and experience of classical Greek battle. But the panoply was only one reason for the deadliness 
and effectiveness of the phalanx. A far more important one lay within the hearts and minds of the Hopelites, their sense of communal solidarity. The phalanx replaced the individual fighting skills of each Hopelite with the collective solidity and irresistibility of the formation itself. In fact, the Greeks of the city-states frowned upon ostentatious displays of individual prowess. At the Battle of Plataea, one of the two Spartan survivors of Thermopylae, Aristodamus, charged out of his assigned place in the front rank of the Spartan phalanx, plunged into the Persian army and struck down several of the enemy before he was himself killed. Instead of praising his suicidal courage, the Spartans condemned Aristodamus for breaking ranks and so endangering the safety of the entire phalanx. Even more importantly, the city-state's phalanx was made up of all property-owning, able-bodied men between youth and old age, roughly the ages of 18 and 60. The phalanx was therefore the community under arms. Citizen fought beside citizen, neighbors with neighbors, family members with family members. In the presence of their friends and relatives, the Hopelites would do everything they could not to show cowardice, and therefore suffer shame. Instead, they strove to prove their individual worth by displaying steadfast courage in the collective fight. As the 7th century poet Tyrtaeus exclaimed, And it is a good thing for his city and all the people share with him, when a man plants his feet and stands in the foremost spears, relentlessly, all thought of foul flight completely forgotten, and has well trained his heart to be steadfast and to endure, and with words encourages the man who is stationed beside him. With hope lights fired by the spirit of communal solidarity, the phalanx could be both irresistible force and immovable object. The armies of Greek city-states were never made up exclusively of hope lights. Richer citizens could serve as cavalrymen. They provided not only their own arms and armor, but their horses. Poorer citizens who could not afford the hopelite panoply mustered as unarmored skirmishers equipped with javelins. Yet down to the wars with the Persians, these troops appeared to play only an insignificant role in the city-state way of war. Remarkably, ancient Greek descriptions of battles almost never describe them in action. For the Greeks, the hopelite and his phalanx were at the center of both their cultural vision as well as their practice of war. The supreme masters of the phalanx were the Spartans. Their mastery was based on the plain fact that they were the only professional hopelites in the entire Greek world. In the 8th century BCE, Sparta had conquered the neighboring country of Messenia. The Spartans then converted the Messenians into serfs called helots and forced them to labor in their fields. Freed from the necessity of making a living, Spartan males could devote all of their time to physical exercise and military training. This exercise and training began in childhood, in accordance with a regime organized and directed by the Spartan state, called the agoge, the upbringing. At the age of seven, all Spartan boys were required to leave their homes and enter one of the public barracks that also doubled as a school. There the boys were groomed for adult warriorhood through a tough regime of physical training and competitive games. At twelve, the Spartan boys were classified as youths, and the physical training intensified. At twenty, the young Spartans entered manhood and became full citizens. 
They then joined one of the adult messes, or Sicidia, with 15 men. These squads of 15 also formed the basic units of the Spartan army. Spartan men remained in their messes until they were 30, when they were allowed to rejoin their families. However, all Spartans remained liable for military service until the age of 60. Therefore, from the age of 7 onward, Spartan males spent much of their time in physical exercises or military training. Plutarch, a Greek writer of the 1st century CE, once quipped that only war brought Spartan men a break from training for war. The Spartans were unmatched in the close-in fighting of the phalanx. Moreover, they were capable of tactical feats and maneuvers that other amateur Greek copelites could not even contemplate. An anecdote recorded by Plutarch illustrates the differences between the Spartans and the other Greeks. During the 4th century BCE, the Spartan king Agesilaus was leading an army of Spartans and Spartan allies. The allies complained that Agesilaus had brought too few soldiers with him. In response, Agesilaus ordered all the Spartans and allies to sit down. He then called upon all the potters to stand up, then the carpenters, the farmers, and so on through all of the civilian occupations. At the end, all of the allies were standing, and only the Spartans remained seated. Agesilaus then laughed and said, See how many more soldiers I have than you. The Spartans cultivated a distinctive appearance. Unlike other Greeks, Spartans kept their hair long. They also wore a red cloak. Spartan hopelites all had the same device on the faces of their bronze shields, a scarlet lambda, which stood for Lacedaemon, the other name for Sparta. The hopelite could, in addition, have a personal badge. One Spartan chose for his a life-sized fly. He explained that he intended to fight at such close range that his enemies could not help but see it. Already, by the 6th century BCE, the Spartans were the most feared military force in the entire Greek world. As we'll see, the Battle of Thermopylae would transform them into nothing less than legendary heroes. Having examined the Greeks, I'd like to turn in part three of the podcast to their enemies, the Empire of the Persians. <laughs>